right. Good morning, church family. Uh, this morning, we're going to be closing out our series titled First Things First. And we could really use a series called First Things First because we tend to put second things first or third things first or even last things first. And it's not that we don't know that the first thing should be first. It's that the second, third, or last things on our list are the things that are pressing us right in our face. So instead of giving us basic life principles to manage our time better, Jesus got straight at our hearts in one of his sermons that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus did is he, he gave us things like, it's not going to be the rich or the proud or the accomplished that are going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but rather it's going to be the humble that seek after God. That if you hate somebody, it's the same as committing murder against them in your heart. If you look after another, another man or another woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart. Don't seek revenge, but rather turn the other cheek. Instead of hating people who hate you, love people who persecute you, and pray for those people. Whenever, if you give, pray, or fast with the intention of impressing people, that's going to be your reward. Don't worry about your needs, but rather focus on the kingdom of God. And examine yourself before you quote-unquote try to fix other people's lives. At the end of the passage of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 through 29, it says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not their scribes. So you see, Jesus wasn't a motivational speaker. He wasn't here to give us six healthy tips for a healthy and well-rounded life. He spoke with authority as the Son of God, telling us what it looks like to be someone who belongs to the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, this is what a Christian ought to walk like, live like, talk like, and even think like. So as Christians, if the one who founded our faith, if the one who we're living for, if the one who is the source of our eternal salvation gave us a sermon about how he wants us to live, these are things that we ought to actively be listening to, examining ourselves, and seeing how our lives line up with what he said. Over the last several weeks, we've been in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through chapter 7 and verse 6, and I want to recap where we've been because where we've been is going to tie right into where we're going to be going today. Okay, We looked at not storing up treasures on earth because those are temporary, but storing up treasures in heaven because those are eternal. We looked at that we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve both God and our own will. We're told not to be anxious about our future and not to be anxious about our needs, but rather to focus on our eternal call. We're called not to judge others without first examining our own lives and our intention to call out a brother or sister in Christ. And he gave us the principle of not casting pearls before swine. In other words, have discernment as to, whether, as to when you should openly share the gospel and when it's more wise to just faithfully live the gospel out. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And as you're turning there, I have a question for you. Actually, two questions for you. The first is how many of you know of somebody who does not stop asking questions? Raise your hand if you know somebody like that. Your hand up, you might, if your hand's up, you might be talking about me because I tend to grill people with questions whenever I first meet them, but I just like to get to know people better, so I have a good heart behind it. Uh, my younger brother, John Luke, whenever we were growing up, he was the king of asking the question, why, why, why? Everything was why. Like, okay, stop asking me why, why? You know? Okay, another question. How many of you do not like asking for something that you need? Put your hands up. That is something I do not like doing. I hate it whenever I have to ask somebody to do something for me. Or if I need something, I hate to ask for it. 
So why do we find it annoying when somebody will not stop asking questions? And why do we have so much fear in asking for something that we need? I think the answer to both of those questions has to do with being a burden. Because the person who keeps on asking us questions is, in a way, burdening us with taking up our time and also taking up all of our headspace in that moment. Okay, this is the parent finally saying to the kid, okay, run along. You know, I got that a lot when I was younger. Okay, we hesitate to ask for something that we need from someone because why? Because we don't want to be a burden to that person. Maybe because that person makes a big deal about it whenever they do, whenever we do ask them for something, or maybe that's just us believing a lie in our own heads. So if that's how we interact with people, where does that leave us with God? Does anyone in this room have any questions for God, or do we all have them pretty well figured out? So then the question is, does God welcome us to come to him with questions, and are we able to ask him for things that we need, or are we burdening God when we come to him? Well, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through 12, and I think Jesus answers both of these questions. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. It says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the, prophet, and the prophets. So, oftentimes, whenever we preach, we like to give our main point first and then give illustrations to follow. But what Jesus does here is he does the opposite. Jesus gives the illustrations first, and then, he, and then the point is the last verse in the passage. So, we're going to start in verse 12 and then jump back to the previous verses to see how that all ties in. So, I'm going to read again chapter 7 and verse 12. It says, So, whatever you wish that others would do to you... Do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So if you, you know, just as a child, you might have heard this. It might, it might even be the, title, the subtitle there in your Bible. This is something called the golden rule, right? Uh, this didn't originate with Bambi. It was actually in the Bible first. But other religions and other teachings have their own version of the golden rule as well. However, the golden rule that Jesus gives is quite different than the other religions. It's worded differently. In other religions and in other teachings, it is do not do to others what you don't want done to you. Rabbi Hillel, a very prominent rabbi in the first century, put it this way, what is hateful to yourself, do not do to someone else. So it seems like those are the same things as what Jesus is saying, but I want to suggest that those are very different because other religions have it in a negative sense, focusing on their own selves and for their own good, but what Jesus offers has it in a positive sense, focusing on others and for their good. Because the, the idea of don't do to others what you don't want done to yourself, there's no love and relationship behind that at all. Generally speaking, I don't want to be killed. So I will not kill you. Where's the love and relationship in that at all? Just because I don't punch you in the face doesn't mean that I love you. 
It means that I have a face too and I don't want you to punch it. This is, this is the whole idea of I'm not feeling very loved by you. It's, well, I haven't done anything bad to you, have I? It doesn't matter that you haven't done anything bad. It's that you haven't done anything loving either. Just because you don't do something does not mean that you love someone or have a relationship with them. It's looking out for me for the good of me, and others are just a bypasser in my life. You don't mess with me. I won't mess with you. And it doesn't, it doesn't take a knowledge, of God, a knowledge of God to look out for our own selves. You don't need salvation to look out for your own self. That's what we do anyway. It does, however, it does take the Holy Spirit convicting our hearts to do what Jesus is calling us to do. And what Jesus said is the complete opposite of what other religions and other, other teachings say because love and relationship are the heart and motivator behind it. Jesus says at the end of verse 12, for this is the law and the prophets. And where, where have we seen that? Where have we seen that before? It comes from the greatest commandment. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 40. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So you can live out a life, live out the life that God has called you to by loving him with everything you have and then reflecting that to other people. Now, there are absolutely specific commandments that we need to live out. If that's all we needed to do, we wouldn't have the entire Bible to address. He didn't just give us those two statements, but everything that we are commanded to, to do falls out of loving the Lord our God with, all, with everything that we have and then loving others out of, a flow, out of the flow from that. So what Jesus says is, whatever you want others to do to you, do to them. This is an unconditional statement. This has nothing to do with what the person can do for me. This has nothing to do with me knowing the person well. This has nothing to do with what this person will give me in return. Rather, this has everything to do with meeting somebody's need and expecting nothing in return. So if you were hungry and without food, what would you want somebody to do for you? You would want them to feed you. Go and do the same. If the only jacket that you had had a big hole in it and it's wintertime, what would you want somebody to do for you? You'd want somebody to get you a new jacket. Go and do that. We want people to ask how we're doing and actually care when they ask. Go and do that. Paul says something very similar to husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 28 through 30, which we looked at a couple months ago. Talking about how Christ loved the church, it says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does, does the church, because we are members of his body. So as a husband, in the same way that I would make sure that I don't go without my needs during the day, so I'm going to do the same for Emily. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So it's not that I neglect myself, it's that in the same way that I don't neglect myself, so I'm not going to neglect the need of others. As a Christ follower, I see a need, I meet a need, and I expect nothing in return. So that, that's, that's the main point in verse, in verse 12 there, but now we're going to work our way back. But a few questions 
might arise in Jesus' teaching here? And all of them are valid questions. So in, in chapter 6, 25 through 31 that we looked at, so if I'm seeking first God's kingdom, where does that leave me with my needs? Right? And now Jesus did answer that question in that passage, but we so easily forget it that he reiterates it here. But another question, so if I examine myself and I am living with a clear conscience before God, how am I supposed to discern whether or not I should take the speck out of my brother's eye? Okay? If I'm living with a clear conscience before God, how am I supposed to know when I should share the gospel and when I should just faithfully live out the gospel? And if, if I'm living a life surrendered to the Lord and I'm constantly sacrificing myself and I'm constantly putting my own self aside for the sake of others, where does that leave me? Jesus answers that in chapter 7, verse 7 through 8. We'll read it again. He says, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. So I, I opened up this passage talking about the type of person who just does not stop asking questions. And we talked about how it's both a burden to our time and a burden to our minds when somebody does not stop asking us questions. So how is it with God where whenever we're in need, of, in, in need of discernment with dealing with a brother or a sister in Christ? How is it with God when we're going through a trial and could really use some guidance in the midst of it? How is it with God whenever we have two good options in front of us and we need to know which one to take? Scripture suggests that we can approach God consistently and persistently. Scripture suggests that we can approach God consistently and persistently. Jesus gave two examples of persistent prayer in the Gospel of Luke. And if you like doing cross-references or anything like that, I would write these, um, I would write these next to uh, chapter 7, verse 7. Uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 5 through 10, Jesus says, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. I would also write this one down too, Luke chapter 18, verse 1 through 8. It says, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So that's the whole point. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming." And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to them day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So God, our Heavenly Father, is in contrast to both the annoyed friend and to the unrighteous judge. God is in contrast to the annoyed friend. Because here's the thing, can we all agree? That friend was being pretty rude. 
coming and banging on somebody's door in the middle of the night saying, hey, I had a friend show up unexpectedly. Can I mooch off of some of your stuff? It's like, you, you know how you're coming to me because even though I don't have a guest, I have stuff. Why don't you have extra stuff? You, you, like, you know what I mean? Like, so his friend is being pretty rude here. But God is in contrast to that because we don't need to worry about being impolite by coming to God. We don't need to worry about waking up God. We don't need to worry about interrupting God while he was in the middle of doing something more important. I don't think any of us, whenever we came to faith in Christ, got a business card with God's business hours and his voicemail on it. God is also in contrast with the unrighteous judge. The unrighteous judge, this widow just kept coming and poking and poking and poking and poking and poking, and then finally the bear moved. And the unrighteous judge says, man, so this woman will stop beating me down with her constant requests. I'll give her what she wants. But that's not God. God is in contrast to the unrighteous judge. We don't need to keep on poking and bothering God until he finally gets up and moves for our li- in our lives. But, so we're, we're, we're encouraged to be persistent in our prayer, but I want to suggest that our persistence is not for God. Our, you see, you, you, don't, you don't have to get God like all wound up in the right way for him to finally move. He, he, you know, God's not, God's not sitting there like, do you really mean it? Do you really mean it? Do you really mean it? Oh, okay, okay, I got you. Okay, he's not, he's not a middle school girl. But our, our, persistent, our persistence is not for God. Why? Because going back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 32, why are we not supposed to worry about our needs? Because your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So if, if God already knows what we need before we ask, number one, why even ask? Number two, why ask persistently? Because our, our persistence is not for God. Our persistence is for us. Pastor John MacArthur put it this way, God gives us enough truth to be responsible and enough mystery to be dependent. I thought that was great. God gives us enough truth to be responsible and yet enough mystery to be dependent. You see, because 2 Peter chapter 1 says, that God has given us everything that we need to live a godly life. He doesn't say that God's given us everything we need to know exactly what to do in every circumstance. But what we can know is we can know what we ought to do to please God in every circumstance. And whenever we come to a point of lacking wisdom, especially in a trial, we can ask God who gives to all generously without Reproach, James says. Our persistence is for us because God wants us involved in a relationship. The more we get involved in the process of God working out his sovereign plan, the deeper our relationship grows with him. Okay? We don't need to keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on knocking because God didn't hear us right the first time, or the second time, or the third time, because guess what? He knew before you even asked. But rather, what it's doing is it's getting our heart straight before him and showing our dependence and trust in him. Our relationship deepens the more persistent we are with God. Because we're commanded to ask, knowing that we will receive We're commanded to seek, knowing that we will find. And we're commanded to knock, knowing that the door will be opened. Looking back at what what it says, does it say, ask and it might be given to you? Seek and you might find? It's kind of up in the air. Knock and it will be open to you? You got a 70-30 chance that God's going to be annoyed and open up the door because you kept knocking? 
right? That, that's not what the text says, but that's how we act a lot. It's not might, it's will. And what he's suggesting here with ask, seek, and knock, it, 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 can, it can also be known as keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And it's not that you might receive, it's not that you might find, it's not that the door might be opened, it's that you will receive, you will find, and the door will be open unto you. But then lies the question, ask, seek, and knock about what? Whatever we want? Do I ask, seek, and knock, God for what, knock on God's door for whatever I want? No. Because remember, this is all in the same sermon, but ch- back to chapter 6 and verse 10. When Jesus, when Jesus is instructing us how to pray, what he says is you start with honoring God for who he is. And then the second thing you say, before you even get to what you need, right? Because oftentimes whenever we come to God in prayer, it's usually because we need something or we want to see something done. But he says, before you even get to what you need, Start with knowing that God is on the throne, number one. And then number two, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's not ask, seek, and knock for my will, my way to be done. It's ask, seek, and knock for your kingdom come, your will be done. See the difference? Look at, look at the contrast that Scripture gives us here. James chapter 4 and verse 3 says, you ask, <clears throat> you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So what's an incorrect way to ask God for something? Anything that lines up with my will, my kingdom come, my will be done. You ask and do, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Why? Because praying before God is not writing a letter to Santa Claus. And if you're good enough, you'll get it on Christmas morning. But rather, the contrast is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. It says, this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. And see, what, what we do is we interpret the verse like this. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything in accordance with our will, he hears us. Right? And, and here's the thing, like whenever I say that out loud, it sounds ridiculous. But then whenever we live it out, it's not so ridiculous. But rather, if we ask according to his will. So whenever I have the mindset of God, your kingdom come, your will be done. God, my kingdom set aside, my will set aside. God, I'm focused on your purposes. Absolutely ask, seek, and knock. And guess what? Don't do it once. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. It will be given to you. You will find the door will be open. And that's the point. Whenever we are doing the will of God, we will never be lacking in what we need to keep moving forward in what he's called us to do. But what is the ultimate will of God? The ultimate will of God is his glory being displayed in creation and in our lives for all of eternity. So we also talked about not asking for what we need because of the fear of burdening the person that we're asking. And this is actually something that recently happened to me at work. Like I mentioned earlier, I do not like asking people um, for something that I need. I don't do it. I, I don't like it. I try everything I can to not do it. Um, but, but there's been two instances at work where there was something that I needed to get the job done, but I was embarrassed to ask about it because I didn't want to burden my boss. The things that I needed 
the things that I needed cost money to do, but I needed it to get that job done. One time, I seriously saw that somebody had the tool that I needed, and it was broken, and it was in the dumpster. I got it out of the dumpster, taped it together, and was about to use it until one of my coworkers stopped me. And I'll, I'll get to the rest of the story, but, but it, it's so interesting because um, I, I, ha- I, I was under the will, I guess you can say, of Wilson Electric, where I work. I was doing a job that they wanted me to do. I ran into something that I needed to complete that job. And I was scared to ask because I thought that I was the burden. I don't want to cost us money to go get that thing I need to go get this job done that's going to make us more money, right? So... What, now that now I'm talking about it, I kind of see why I'm the wrong one in the situation, right? So, the thing is, whenever you have the pulpit, you're the one who gets to sound right most of the time. So, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But so so with that, um, I I really I won't I won't bore you with all the details. I bore Emily with the details about my day. Emily doesn't care about the ground fault circuit interrupter I put in. You know what I mean? Um, but I'll, I'll spare you the details. But all that to say. I needed a certain drill bit because the job I needed to do, I needed to drill into somebody's house in order to get a pipe through the wall to get them electric to what they needed, right? And I don't know if you've ever drilled a hole into somebody's house before, but whenever you do that, you want to make a clean hole and you really don't want to make it look like an afterthought, right? You don't want to use several drill bits and try to make a circle You know, you don't want to drill a little pilot hole and then take a saw and try to make a circle with it. You want just a nice circle to get through there, right? And that is something that supply houses have, and it is something that I did not. So I'm digging around the the, um, tool area in our shed, trying to find um, this drill bit. I kid you not, we had every single size except the one I needed, right? It's like this story of my life right here. I'm going to have to ask for this drill bit. And so I'm, so I'm digging around. My coworkers are being nosy and trying to be helpful. Hey, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? Oh, nothing. No, what are you looking for? And I'm like, I need, I need a one-inch one hole saw so I can run this pipe in the wall. And uh, some of them started looking on their chart. They're like, oh, man, my one-inch hole saw is all busted up. Of course it is. And then my other coworker, he's like, yeah, I have a one-inch one, but, like, honestly, the teeth on that thing are gone. Why don't you just go ask Doran to get you one? And I was like, that's what I'm trying not to do, Robert, but thank you. And so, uh, so finally, I step into my boss's office, tail between my legs. I'm beating around the bush. Hey, so this job that I'm doing today, I really need to be able to drill through the wall and get a one-inch pipe in the wall. And he's like, okay, do you like, need something? And he was like, well, I, I could really use like, the hole saw. Like, I could really use one of the, yeah, I, yes, I need a hole saw, pretty much. And then he's like, oh, well, do you just want a whole kit for your van with every drill bit size? I was like, yeah, that would be great. And he was just like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. He writes up the ticket. I walk out with the ticket in my hand, and my coworker who told me to go ask him, he just looked at me, smiled, he shook his head, and was like, dude, Ethan, you know you don't have to be scared to ask for what you need, right? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. But man, I'm sure that we feel the same sometimes with God, too. God, I'm trying to do this you're calling me to do this, but I've hit a wall now, and I could really use this to keep going. But instead of asking God for that thing, we do something similar to what I did. We go to the dumpster and grab something out of there. But meanwhile, like my, like my boss was a really great representation of what God is like. He didn't condemn me for what I needed to get the job done. He said, 
oh yeah, sure, I'll get you that thing, and why don't you get the other sizes too, because I'm sure you're going to need those in the future too. So at work, if I ask for anything that I need, in the context of the job that I'm going to do, I'm never going to be lacking in those things. And guess what? If I would have needed that drill bit, and my boss would have said, now nah, figure it out another way, like, that's not on me if it looks sloppy, right? But in the same way, when you're doing what God has called you to do, and you're lacking in what you need to get it done, go ahead and ask, seek, and knock. Notice how each one of these gets more persistent as it goes. A kid can ask, right? But to seek, you actually have to get up out of your chair. And to knock, now you're banging on the door. And, and, and what do you knock on? I just gave you the answer there. There's a softball for you. You knock on a door, right? You don't go to somebody's house and knock on the side of the wall. If so, they would come out through their door and be like, what are you doing, right? But we're to knock on the door because whenever we knock on a door, what's the expected result? That somebody's going to open it, right? But we ask. That's the, that's the initial part of persistence. I seek. I actually get up out of my chair. I knock. I actually go up and knock, And what this does, whenever I know that I can freely ask, seek, and find, I mean, ask, seek, and knock after God, what this does is this frees me up to give to those who are in need without the fear of being left with nothing because I know that I have a heavenly Father who's aware of my needs. So not not only can we approach God consistently and persistently, but we can approach God confidently. Not only can we approach God consistently and persistently, we can approach God confidently. Take a look back at chapter 7, verse 9 through 11. It says, Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In the uh, parallel passage in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, it says, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we can confidently come before God because he is a good father. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then draw with confidence, I mean, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that way we may receive mercy and grace in the time of need. We can approach the throne of God confidently. Now, Jesus gives some examples here that kind of seem ridiculous, but in their context, um, it's actually something not too, too far off. So it says, which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Right? Like to us, that sounds ridiculous. But uh, where where they're at when Jesus is talking about this, many rocks in the desert had the same color and the shape as the loaf of bread, but no father would deceive his son in that way and substitute a rock for a loaf of bread. Because with his son asking him for a loaf of bread, what his son is doing is asking his father for a basic daily need to be met, right? Right? This isn't just, hey, dad, can I have some fruit snacks, right? This is, hey, dad, can my daily, can you meet my daily needs today? And what father, even an unsaved father, wouldn't give his son a stone? I mean, not only is the kid going to chip his tooth, but last I checked, stones have no nutritional value to them whatsoever. What, what father would do that? Certainly not a good one. 
even an unsaved father. You don't even need salvation to not give your son a stone when he asks for bread. In the same way, God's not going to leave us, his beloved children, he's not going to leave us with our needs unmet. The second example he gives is he said, or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. Now, this is assuming that the food is cooked, right? Like usually, like if, if his son's asking for a fish, he's asking for a cooked fish. He's not asking him to go grab a fish so he can play with it, right? And in the same way, it's not like, yeah, son, I've got a fish for you. Ah! You know, it comes out with a snake. No, he's de- it's talking about deceiving son. And what you need to know in the context In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 12, a fish was a clean animal to eat, but a serpent was not. The serpent and the fish both have scales. The serpent and the fish both look similar after they're prepared and cooked. One of them is clean. One of them is ceremonially unclean. So no father would defile his son, would deceive his son and defile him in the process. And the bigger picture here is God is not going to lead you to disobey him. I'll say that again. God is not going to lead you to disobey him. There is never going to be a time when you can compromise on your faith And God is okay with that. But guess what? There's going to be a lot of times where the enemy is going to tempt us and make us think, I know God's word says this, but doesn't it seem to work a lot better if you do it this way? Right? So in the same way that a good father on earth wouldn't give his son anything deliberately that would defile him. In the same way, God is never going to lead us and put us in a position to disobey him. There may be times when the only way forward seems to be to disobey God, but that is never the right thing to do. So what do we do whenever we're in a position where the, the, where, the path isn't, where the path isn't clear, and the way that dishonors God seems to work a lot better than the other one. Ask, seek, and knock. It says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Saying, you who are evil, I think sometimes we get a little taken back like that. Like, well, I'm not evil. But you remember a couple months ago, whenever we went through Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, at the foundation of our faith, we have to understand that apart from God, we are evil. Apart from God, we are enemies of God. Remember what Ephesians says, that we're enemies of God, that we're children of wrath. I don't think anybody puts that on their job resume. Child of wrath, right? Like, Let's put that application in the shredder. But no, but if even, what he's saying is, even if an unsaved person wouldn't do something ridiculous like this to their son, why do we assume that a perfect, loving, heavenly father won't do even more for us? And and he says, how much more will your father give good things. And we've seen how much more before. A couple weeks ago, in chapter 6, verse 30, whenever it's talking about our needs being met, it says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he not clothe you, O you of little faith? Are we of more value than grass? Yes or no? Yes, absolutely. Jesus didn't come to die for the grass. He came to die for us. So if God clothes the grass of the field, how much more? And in the same way, if unsaved, if unregenerate people don't 
don't give their kids a stone when they ask for bread. How much more does your father who is in heaven care about you and what you need? How much more does a perfect, gracious, kind, loving, heavenly father? So we can confidently come before God because he is a good father. And secondly, we can confidently come to the throne of God because he is unchanging. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Okay? We don't need to worry about catching God at a bad time. We don't need to approach God like a genie where we need to rub the lamp the right way and be careful how you word word your request or you're going to get a sarcastic answer. Instead, we can approach God knowing that he's the same today as he was yesterday and he's going to be the same tomorrow and he's going to be the same for all of eternity and that he gives good things in accordance with with what is good for his children. Whenever God gives us something, we don't need to be suspicious about it. When God gives us a good gift, we don't have to be like, yeah, what's the catch? God, things are going pretty good right now. What are you you planning? We don't have a God like that. Now it says that God gives good things for good things for his children, but we need to define what is good, right? So, so what's good? Is it, is it anything that draws us closer to God or is it things that drive us further from God? It's obviously things that bring us closer to God. So our good is not our comfort or our success or our financial security, though God may still give us those things. But our good is our holiness. Our good is anything that shapes us into who the Lord is calling us to be. And that's the context that we ask, seek, and knock in. So our confidence as we approach the throne of God is not in the result that we're going to get, but our confidence is the one in who we asked. Our confidence is not in the result that we will get. Our confidence is in the one that we asked. Whatever God may choose to do or not do with my request I can trust in his character and be at peace. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we're not guaranteed that when we ask, seek, and knock, that we're going to get exactly what we want. However, we are guaranteed that God, number one, will give us what is good for us. Number two, that we're not going to be lacking in anything in what he's called us to do. And then number three, we are guaranteed that our hearts and our minds are going to be guarded by the peace of God despite the result that he gives us. So, if God is not good, if he's not a good father, why even bother asking him anything? However, if he is good, what stops us from asking from anything according to his will? So, if you're a believer in the room, you need to know that you don't need to worry about yourself when you're giving away yourself for the sake of God and for the sake of others, because you will not be lacking in anything. We can confidently say yes to God before he even gives us the task, okay? So that's, Ethan, I need you to, yep. Ethan, I need you to consider it done. What is it? I I don't have to examine what God gives me. I can do it knowing with full confidence that he's going to provide what I need along the way. Now, if you're not a believer in the room, I'm really glad you're here. 
And this amazing relationship with a good and gracious father is something that waits for you. The first part about asking, seeking, and knocking after the will of God for your life, the first step is for you to accept the free gift of salvation by placing your faith and trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the first step for you. And then you can live a God-pursuing life knowing that you will not be lacking in anything as you follow him. Okay, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for being so consistent. There's never been a time where I've had to worry about catching you at a bad time or trying to butter you up in the right way to get what I want. But rather, you're the same today as you were yesterday, and you're going to be the same tomorrow. So thank you for the free gift of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, thank you not only for our eternal security that's found in you, but thank you also for the hope that we have in you as we wait to see you face to face. God, I pray that whatever lies may be in our head about asking, seeking, and knocking for the sake of doing what you're calling us to do. Lord, if there's anybody hesitating to do what you're calling them to do because, because of some barrier in the way, God, I pray that that gets removed from them and that they can confidently come before you consistently, persistently, and confidently. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.